This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we learn about the Ice Age, the animals that were living here, and the people who are coming over to populate the Americas. It's a good show. Stay with us. There's just so much, uh, so many questions to be answered and so many things to explore. And it's fun to just be, it's fun to be out in nature and at the same time understand what your surroundings are. You know, knowing something about geology. So, you know, an arch isn't just an arch. It, you know, <laughs> you just, it just adds so much richness to the outdoors to have a good scientific understanding of why things are the way they are. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Dr. Tim Heaton. Dr. Heaton is a retired professor in earth sciences from the University of South Dakota. There, Dr. Heaton studied Ice Age mammals found in caves. He got his start exploring the caves of the Colorado Plateau and currently lives here in Moab. Of his many accomplishments, one of the best well-known is his discovery of a partial skeleton of a 10,000-year-old human in a cave off of the islands of Alaska. These remains are one of a handful of the oldest human remains ever found in the Americas. Here with Dr. Heaton, we talk about the discovery he made and why the site he found helps us understand how humans came to populate the Americas. We begin our interview with Dr. Heaton explaining the path that led him to becoming interested in exploring caves. Well, first of all, I, I became a cave explorer here in, in Utah growing up. So there's a lot of caving around the state and even some like in Colorado near Glenwood Springs and Grand Canyon area. And then when I got into research, starting in my undergraduate, I started studying a cave on the Utah-Nevada border called Crystal Ball Cave that had a lot of Ice Age remains. So I did my master's thesis on that. And I kind of deviated from that. I was interested in patterns of evolution in the fossil record. I did my PhD at Harvard with Stephen Jay Gould. And so I kind of was working more with collections that had already been made and more in the Midwest. But then uh, some of my old caving buddies moved up to Alaska and started exploring the caves up there and started finding bones. So I was really interested in that because it's kind of in that corridor where humans and animals were first coming from Asia or going back and forth in the case of animals. That was an area that really hadn't been explored and it kind of been overlooked because people thought it was all overridden by ice and as we started going up there and finding more stuff, we found that it was everything was different than people had expected. It wasn't just a collection of the early you know, recolonization species after the Ice Age. We were finding things that should have been there earlier, and it turns out to be kind of a corridor where things were moving up and down the coast early on. What kind of things were you finding that should have been there earlier? Things like caribou, which, you know... First of all, we're working on islands, so not that many animals get out to islands. We really have a fairly low diversity overall. But today, among 
grazing animals, only deer live out there, you know, grazing, browsing sorts of animals. And no caribou live on the island. So why are we finding caribou fossils, for example? And then the islands we were exploring only had black bears. And in the literature, people had speculated that black bears got there first, and so grizzlies never made it. Well, we started finding lots of grizzly remains right off the bat. So clearly something was going on. We started finding fox bones and other species that that isn't out there. Most of the caves we first were exploring were early post-glacial, kind of in the 10 to 12,000 year old range. Glaciers melted around 13,000 years ago. So still it was weird that we were finding animals that didn't survive there and the picture was more complicated. But we wanted a record of the Ice Age itself, or at least getting back into the period of the last glacial maximum, which is about from um, you know, something in the range of twenty to 13,000 years ago. And we finally found a cave that covered that whole time period. It was just loaded with fossils. It's called On Your Knees Cave, or it's been renamed Shukaka after the. I found a human, part of a human skeleton in that cave as well, which has probably gotten more attention than the animals. But the animal record goes back a lot farther and it's you know, really gives us a clear picture of what was there as the Ice Age began, the last glacial expansion in any case, and as the glaciers retreated for the last time. So you described it as the last glacial maximum. Can you describe what that means? Yeah, the Ice Age was kind of the last two million years, but it was really a period of glaciers expanding, contracting over and over again. In fact, you know, really today we aside from like man-made global warming and other factors like that. You know, you'd think at some point, thousands of years down the road, it should probably cool down and go back into a glacial expansion period again. But these things occurred over and over again. So there were dozens of glacial maxima where the glaciers expanded and then kind of retreated again. You'd had periods more like today uh, during the Ice Age. So the last glacial maxima was just the last of these glacial expansion epochs. When you go to a cave, you know, you explore caves, what are you, what's the process like? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to find in a cave? The funny thing about this cave was that it didn't have any of the sort of signs of being a good cave for digging. But, you know, the first caves they started finding bones in, they'd go into a chamber and there'd just be bare skeletons, like just exposed on the ground. And it was shocking to radiocarbon date them and find you know, they were 10, 11, 12,000 years old. Because you'd think you know, only something really buried and sealed off would last that long. But the caves have very constant temperature and humidity, so things preserve very well. We'd excavated several caves like that that just had these spectacular whole skeletons. And you know, we'd dig down in the sediment and screen the sediment, but we wouldn't find a huge amount of stuff. Once you got down a few inches, you'd hardly find any more bone. Where this cave, and I was only kind of taken to it by accident. It was a tiny cave. They called it On Your Knees Cave because there was nowhere to stand up in it. It was literally just a couple of long crawlways that were kind of difficult to get through. No skeletons to see, just a few bones scattered around. But um, it was right before we excavated another high-altitude cave. We were waiting for a helicopter trip, and the, there kept being delays in weather and so on. This friend of mine, Kevin Allred, who was my old caving buddy in Utah, he said, let's go out, we'll spend a day and go out and check this other cave. We found a few bones. And you know, we had we did this long cross-country hike through the d- dense forest. And 
I, I couldn't even figure out how they found this cave. It was just a tiny hole in the ground hidden by vegetation, but it had been found during a logging survey, so they were carefully looking for anything. Yeah, so we went in, and I collected a, a few samples, but, you know, it just didn't have the feel of a great cave at first, which is kind of weird. But then we, the surprise came when we started dating these bones. They were just much older. You know, instead of The first bone we dated, instead of being 11,000, was 35,000 years old. So it was actually well before the last glacial maximum. And that seemed unbelievable. We dated another bone. It was 42,000 years old. So that kind of focused all our attention. Here's a cave that just clearly has older material. And then as we started digging, you know, even though there wasn't a lot at the surface, as we dug it, it was just loaded with bone. Some places we dug up to, I think it was 8 or 10 feet deep, and there was bone all the way to the floor. Even though it was these crawlaways, they'd just be very narrow passages going down some depth. So it, it kind of accumulated bone in a different manner than the other caves. Also, the bones we were finding were all different. We had a lot of the same things, but we found a whole bunch of species we hadn't seen in all these post-glacial caves. You know, in addition to foxes and caribou and brown bear, we found marmot and these other kind of cold-weather rodents. The neatest thing, we were finding ring seals, a seal that lives on sea ice. It's very specific to sea ice. So I dated a lot of bones of ring seal to kind of figure out when was sea ice in the area. And that closely tracked the glacial maximum from, you know, 21 to, to about 13, 13 and a half thousand years old was kind of the range of those bones. So we could learn a lot about, you know, the the climatic conditions at different times by dating specific animal remains. And I'm just curious because I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I do ecology and we come to questions with hypotheses. What is it like when you're digging in a cave? Do you have hypotheses or are you just trying to see what's there? It can be both. It may depend. I mean, you could be exploring an area with the specific questions you're trying to answer. Or you might just, you know, be something cool is reported to you. You go to study it and the the questions sort of come as you see what's there. And this was sort of a combination. And the, I mean, there, there had been different hypotheses about this area of coastal Alaska. You know, the hypothesis that it was overridden by ice, nothing survived, and anything living there today, you know, got there after the Ice Age. Well, some people had speculated maybe the coast was actually a little better than we thought. That you know, After all, you have all this marine food. The, the ocean keeps things a little warmer than you would have inland, particularly because there had been this talk of the ice-free corridor, kind of a corridor between the, the, Alaska, or the uh, Canadian glaciers were thought to be where humans first came down. But there was, there was a lot of skepticism about that for a number of reasons. And, and so, you know, could the coast have been an area that had some habitable uh, islands or zones during the Ice Age? Or could there have even been refugia where animals survived in little isolated warm pockets on the coasts? So that, these are ideas that have been tossed around that immediately came to mind when we started finding these unusual animals. You know, does this just mean that more things were getting to the islands early on, or were these animals actually surviving in these little coastal pockets surrounded by ice for thousands of years during the, the last glacial maximum? We're still kind of trying to resolve that question. Uh, we're getting some ancient DNA out of some of the bones now that helps, because then you can trace the actual lineages of the animals. And 
see what they're closest to or if they're really different from anything living today. And so on top of these animals that maybe you hadn't expected to see in these caves, you also found um, evidence of human occupation. Yeah, and we'd found a couple of artifacts in other caves, but nothing too significant. And then we started digging in on Yuni's cave. Fairly early on, we found an obsidian spear point. So that was a clear indication that humans had been in there poking around. You know, one problem with anything human-related is it's much more political. You have you know, the Grave uh, Protection Repatriation Act, and, and really the native groups have a lot of control over really anything archaeological and particularly with human remains, you know, they can shut a dig down if they don't cooperate with it. Luckily, we had a forest service archaeologist we were working with named Terry Fifield, who'd been working extensively with the local uh, Clinket and Haida tribes up there. But he developed a good relationship with the tribes, and they really trusted his judgment and work on things. Again, you know, he came up and took a look at the situation. We found this one spear point. It didn't seem to be you know, any evidence at that point of a real archaeological side. It just seemed to be kind of a stray artifact. Maybe somebody went in the cave and broke their spear. You know, unless we were finding more, we could just continue digging. But it was actually on the 4th of July, 1996. So we were literally filling the last bags of sediment to leave the cave for that season, I pulled up this bone. <laughs> it's really strange, and it was it was actually the two separate halves of a lower jaw of a human. It was scary as much as exciting, just because, uh, you know, we finally found this cave that has all the old bones we've been looking for, and it's so much better than all the other caves. And now, when basically it was the overburden in the cave, you know, we find this human. <laughs> this could really be trouble, so... Anyway, we immediately called uh, this Terry Fifield, and he came right up and showed him what we'd found. And so it was kind of convenient because we were shutting down for the seas. You know, clearly there wasn't going to be more digging until we'd done all the whole negotiation process. But things went really well. The the tribes were really interested in what we'd found, and you know, thought it was well worth uh, exploring this further. They even found the base of that of that spear point we found early on in the excavation. So you can almost tell a story there. You know, someone must have gone in the cave trying to spear a bear or something, broken this spear, he goes out, you know, unhalfs it, throws it on the ground, and halfs a new one back onto the the stem or the, <laughs> the spear goes back in or something. And we think what they were probably doing, they were probably smoking out hibernating bears. So, you know, obviously a hibernating bear is going to be very sleepy and not very alert, you know. So if they can go in there with torches and spears and poke a bear and get him upset enough to just kind of stumble out of the cave where they're all prepared with their spears ready to ready to take him down, that's kind of what we're thinking happened. Because even in the cave, we'd find little clumps of these microblades and charcoal, like a torch was thrown down or a spear point was lost or something. So you can kind of um, surmise what was going on there and how this one human ended up in the cave is a mystery. <laughs> Maybe the bear one. It wasn't the whole skeleton. It was the lower jaw, one upper tooth, and then several ribs and vertebrae. So yeah, probably, you know, a skeleton that had been already lost its limbs and things was dragged in later. Rather. So how old did the human skeleton end up being? Yeah, with all the corrections on the radiocarbon dates, it's about 10,300 years old. 
probably one of the oldest dozen skeletal remains of humans in the Americas. Yeah, within a few weeks, the two local tribes in Klawak and Craig, Alaska, up on Prince of Wales Island, signed agreements saying they supported the research, that you know we could continue digging. They wanted to be involved and informed before we ever released any, you know, made any press releases or anything. They wanted to be fully informed of anything we found. We kind of agreed eventually the remains would be returned to them for reburial. They really gave us all the time in the world to to do all the studies we needed to do and to fully excavate the cave. So, so at that point, um, an archaeologist named Jim Dixon, he was at the time working for the Denver Museum. I'd already worked with him on some cave sites. He was really, he was basically hunting for something just like this because he knew that area was so significant and could really hold some important evidence of human occupation. So he got involved and uh, kind of dig, did a big joint excavation for several summers where he'd work for 10 weeks or so. There were a lot of sinkholes and stuff around because it's full of limestone caves. We'd line the sinkholes so they'd fill with water over the winter so we'd have water not really to drink, but we had to screen a lot of sediment. So we had a whole screen washing system set up up there, and it was really a, quite a complex operation, very difficult to get to. You know, you had to take a boat from a tiny town that was many, many miles of dirt road away from any pavement, and we're still on an island. You have to fly or take a ferry just to get to the island. It was a tough hike getting up to the cave as well. And we helicoptered in a lot of gear and stuff to set up a camp there, Kept digging and digging, and like I said, the inside of the cave was just loaded with bone. I cataloged about 50,000 individual bones just from that cave. And then the archaeologists worked primarily right outside the cave and kind of right in the immediate entrance, which worked out good. And that was where most of the younger sediments were and where most of the human artifacts were found. Because this Jim Dixon figure, you know, if people are going in this cave, they're probably spending a lot more time right outside, you know, preparing their tools. And sure enough, they f- they found all kinds of uh, points, and particularly a lot of what they call microblades. They're little tiny pieces of obsidian or quartz. It was sort of a resource expansion technique. Instead of making a big spear point out of a chunk of obsidian, they could make hundreds of these little blades and they'd insert them in spears. So it was kind of a way to get more out of your stone because it was a fairly limited resource up there. The remains that you found, do they match the DNA of people from that area? Not specifically to that area. This is so early that it's more like an ancestral... the, The DNA matches what you'd expect as kind of an ancestral person to all Native Americans throughout North and South America. So you can kind of find linkages all over the place, but no, it's not specific to that one area at all. This would be a population that was kind of coming down and expanding. And it's a little tricky too, because this was clearly not like the first guy to come through the area. I mean, we're looking at probably several thousand years after the first people entered the Americas. And you say that because of older skeletons, other places. Yeah, and because, for example, the obsidian we found, we've been able to use isotopes to trace the obsidian to specific flows. So we know exactly where they were finding obsidian and it was being traded all over. You know, they had already established all the resources in the region very well. 
you know, we're trading things from remote sites up in coastal Canada, you know, so hundreds of miles away. Um, you know, they figured out where all the resources were and that sort of thing. So, you know, this was clearly an established part of an established population rather than kind of just a, an early explore, exploratory group, you could say. And they still would have been islands during the glacial maximum. Well, they would have been all covered by glaciers, so it would have been one big ice sheet as far as you would see overhead, plus sea level drop too. This is part of the problem. So the coast was basically shifted offshore a ways. I see. So if you want to find the ancient shoreline, you've got to go dive. And they have dred- <laughs> they've done some dredging in likely spots. And once they even found a stone tool, you know, they can't say for sure whether it was dropped from a boat or whether it was you know, a land-based tool. But, but that's kind of where the future lies <laughs> in this sort of research. Is, uh, if you really want to find the old coastal sites... You know, 12, 13, 14,000 years ago, they're, they're submerged under a couple of hundred feet of water now. And you would consider those the likely candidates for the very first evidence of people coming over? It would be in those coastal yeah, underwater Yeah, exactly, because there would probably been a lot of ice to get around otherwise. But we also found the evidence that the ice was fairly short-lived. You know, there was kind of a, a pulse that covered most of the area, but it was was relatively quick. It wasn't sitting there for 5,000 years. Mm. This is part of this. There was an article that came out earlier this year that I'm a co-author on. That's, it's an isotope study on the rocks where they look at beryllium-10 isotope, and it basically tells you how long a particular landscape has been exposed to cosmic rays. So you can basically tell when the glacier stopped eroding the rock and it was sort of exposed to the air. The cosmic rays only penetrate a couple of meters deep before most of them get absorbed. So it's it's a pretty clear way of telling when the glaciers retreated from a given area. And it corresponds really well with my radiocarbon dates. That's kind of why the that's why I'm on the paper and we're kind of merging that data to to give a more complete picture of the the glacial retreat. I'm curious, down here in the Moab area, what what was going on down here during the time that On Your Knees Cave was occupied? Well, in many ways, it was a lot more interesting down here. <laughs> Not just this area specifically, but all of North and South America had a lot of what we would today consider pretty exotic creatures. Um, for example, there were giant lions, saber-toothed cats, um, in addition to brown and black bears, there was what was called the short-faced bear, a really gigantic, run, fast-running bear. There were ground sloths of several different species, dire wolves, a species of wolf that was bigger than the modern wolf, you know, a whole slew of extinct animals, and, and also a lot of things we think of as old-world animals like camels and horses. Actually, camels and horses both have their evolutionary history here in North America, and only got to Europe and Asia during the Ice Age. You know, well, bison and humans and things were coming over here. The horses and camels were escaping <laughs> over there, and then they went extinct here. In fact, there was a huge mass extinction in kind of the ten to 12,000-year-ago range here in North America where we lost most of those really large animals. So that's been a subject of a lot of debate. You know, why did they die? And And one of the prominent theories is that humans coming over here, you know, found all these animals unafraid of this new (laughs) predator, and they kind of wiped them all out, and, you know, or perhaps 
climate change at the end of the Ice Age, or maybe some combination of the two. There's kind of problems with both theories because we had glaciers come and go many times, like I mentioned. And there were extinctions at the end of each glacial period, but not one as significant as this one after the last glacial maximum. So that would suggest something new had to be here, which humans are the obvious difference. But on the other hand, you know, if you look at the evidence of human hunting, 99% of it is bison. It's bison kills where you're finding you know, this obvious evidence that humans were hunting bison. But bison are one of the few large mammals that survived in large numbers and hardly seemed affected by all that hunting where you know, it's rare. You find a few things like mammoths that have been worked by humans. Even there, it's not clear where they were hunted by humans or just found and, you know, chopping off their tusks and things later. But, you know, again, very little evidence of human hunting for these other species that went extinct. So there's all these kind of funny mysteries about why these animals died off. We're up in Alaska. We just First of all, we're out on islands, so again, not that many animals get out to the islands. But we're, you know, in, in terms of the overall diversity, it was rather minimal compared to what was down here during that same time frame. What first got you interested in studying paleontology and geology and caving and all the cool things that you've done? You know, I was coming down to this area since uh, 1972, just on family trips to Canyonlands. Uh, I got real interested in John Wesley Powell's explorations of the Colorado River and read his diary. And <laughs> I just sort of loved the geology of, of southern Utah and then got into caving, which is kind of different. Caves generally require a fairly pure limestone. That's why we don't have a lot of caves around right around here because there just isn't the the limestone that's necessary. But like if you go to Glenwood Springs area, there's a, if you've ever driven through the narrows there, that's in that kind of bluish colored limestone that's full of caves. And there's places around the Wasatch Front and down in the Grand Canyon. And Western Utah has a lot of caves. So that got me interested in geology as well. So at a fairly young age, that's kind of what I wanted to, to go into. But then... You know, as I was kind of trying to decide on a specialty within geology, that's where the the caves and the bones found it <laughs> uh, really caught my attention. I got into cave exploring as a kid. So when I found out there were bones in caves of animals from the past, that just sounded too cool. Drew me specifically into what field of geology I wanted to do. But I, I had a really broad interest, interest really in all the physical sciences I love chemistry and physics, as well as all the different areas of geology, and then I love biology as well. And then what do you enjoy about being a scientist? There's just so much, uh, so many questions to be answered and so many things to explore, and it's fun to just be, it's fun to be out in nature and at the same time understand what your surroundings are. You know, knowing something about geology. So, you know, an arch isn't just an arch. It, you know, <laughs> it's a hard layer of rock underlain by a soft layer that eroded and created the arch, for example. You know, knowing the birds and animals. Right now I'm studying a lot of the botany of this area because it's interesting seeing, you know, where different types of plants grow as, as you're out and about. You just It just adds so much richness to the outdoors to have a good scientific understanding of why things are the way they are. But I just really enjoy all the aspects of science for that reason. I couldn't agree more. 
thank you so much for this interview. It's been really cool to hear about the amazing discovery that you made. (laughs) Thanks, and thank you for your interest. To listen to this interview with Dr. Tim Heaton again or any past shows, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Redd Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.